I, I feel like there are spaces and places that we go that uh, remind us of our practical freedom. So, uh, you know, men and women died, uh, fought and died for uh, our freedom as a nation. And, you know, if you look back through history, we broke away. And we have freedom of religion and freedom of speech and, and all of these rights. And so there are multiple holidays and days that are built into our calendar year that remind you that you're free. I mean, you've got to pay taxes and you've got to obey the laws. But you're free. Spiritually. There are things in our lives that are trying to hold us back, that are trying to imprison us, and we need to be reminded, as the scriptures say in John 8, therefore, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free, that you are free. And a couple of weeks ago, we started a conversation about what freedom in Christ looks like, like what practically does it look like for us to walk in freedom in Christ, that we're free to choose our master, You're going to be ruled by someone. I'm going to be ruled by someone. We can choose our master, so choose wisely. And last week we talked about the reality that you're free to create. You're free to create the life that you imagine, the life that God has intended for you. You are free to create that life and to uh, dream and imagine and, and build. And this morning what I want you to know is that you're free to worship. You're free to worship whatever, whenever. That you are free. You're free to stay. You're free to go if you want to leave. You're free to stick around. You're free to come back next week. You're free to visit other churches. You are free. But I need you to know that even though you are free to worship whatever and whenever, you are not ever not worshiping. When we think of the word worship, we often think of it in the context of a church. And we begin to uh, ascribe certain uh, values or certain uh, practical things to worship. So we say worship is this. Worship is singing songs. John and Amanda did a great job this morning. Worship is playing the instruments. Worship is praying. Worship is communion. Uh, Worship is giving of alms or confession. Worship is this or that. And then there are other people who go, well, worship is not this. So we go, well, worship is not this style of music, or worship is not not this thing, or some people believe worship is not playing instruments, uh, even though David did in the Bible, but that's beside the point. Worship is this, and it's not that, and we've decided and defined what we believe worship is, but when we look at the definition, worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. I worshiped the lawnmower yesterday, and it engaged my entire being, including my sinus cavities. I worship for just a moment. That worship is ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that it engages our entire being, that you and I are free to worship anything we want. And we worship something all the time. With our time, with our attention, with our money, we're always worshiping something. We're always ascribing value. We're always ascribing worth. We're always paying attention to. But the scriptures are imploring us to turn our devotion, our attention to Christ, to make God at the center of our worship. That when we say the word worship, we think it's a series of things, but the Bible actually describes worship as being the way that we live our lives. What are we paying attention to? The interesting thing about the way we view worship is that it's often, uh, as we describe practical things, we think those are ends of themselves. So we say, we just worshiped. We just wrapped up worship. She put her guitar down. He walked away from the piano. And now this is the message. And then there's going to be more worship. And then you're going to go home. And you're going to have lunch. And then you're going to maybe watch the NBA finals if you're like me. And then uh, you're going to go to bed early because you've got Monday coming, right? And you've got to be ready. And so we divide our lives up into components 
compartments, and we have this compartmentalized life where this is this, and this is this, this is work, this is church, and church is worship, but even in church, we divided it. There's fellowship, and there's communion, and there's worship. And what God does is he looks at your life and mine in all aspects and all areas, and he goes, that, that's worship. The way you think, the way you talk, the things you do, the places you go, the condition of your heart, that is, that is worship. And the risk of us defining what worship is in very narrow terms, saying playing the guitar and singing is worship, but not the electric guitar, right? And, and you can't include drums or whatever. So that's not worship, but this is. And the problem with doing that is all of a sudden, worshiping in this way all of a sudden becomes an idol. It's a means to an end, not a means to another end. Worship is a means to get closer to God, to connect with God, to honor and to glorify God. But when we define it in such specific terms, it becomes a means to, uh, to its own ends. And the risk is that it becomes an empty duty. Where we go, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to sing a couple of songs. That's done. What's next? That's done. What's next? And it's not a checklist of things that we do, but it's a posture. It's the mannerisms. It's the heart's position. It's us saying, my life is worship. And if we start to think that we have to do certain things in order to earn favor from God, we slide into religion. Religion's a funny term because it's often interchangeable. Um, but the true heart behind religion is uh, a belief that good behavior qualifies us for membership in God's family. So if we start going, well, I have to sing this song, or I have to worship this way, or I have to go this time, and I have to do this thing, all of a sudden we start to feel like we have to do this as an empty duty that we're checking off a list so that we can earn God's favor, and that's religion, and God wants nothing to do with that. That the reality is that the story of worship is told by the Bible begins and, and, and is described in a radically different way. And in fact, so often for us, worship we think is about what we do. We just worshiped. I sang, I raised my hands, I clapped, I, I did this or that, I knelt, whatever. Worship is often in our terms about what we do. And we begin to think, well, I am worshiping God. We imagine that, uh, you know, this is what I'm doing for God. And in fact, the Bible actually describes worship very different, that worship was God's idea. He initiated in creation. The Bible actually says that if you and I stop worshiping, and we're free to do that, the rocks will cry out. All of creation is groaning. That in the encoded into the DNA of our very universe is the desire to worship God to the point that the rocks in some way have the capacity to cry out to God if you and I choose not to. I think that'd kind of be cool, but I'd be really embarrassed if rocks were worshiping because I chose not to. That God says, I've designed you and created you handcrafted you to worship something bigger than yourselves. That all of heaven and earth were spoken into existence. And then God handcrafted me and you. Formed us and shaped us in his image. He created us out of the overflow of his love and his passion. And we were created to show the same kind of love and compassion towards God. That the, uh, the byproduct of recognizing that God loves us is that we in return worship him in all areas of our life. And it's not segmented. And it's not compartmentalized. But it ends up being uh, just a default to how we live. But we're free. You're free. You don't have to worship God. We can worship anything we want, anytime we want. But we were created to worship something bigger than ourselves. But I found that most of the worship that I take part in in, in my week is, is uh, worship of self. 
It just is. Uh, it's self-serving worship. And I found that every time I get into a, a posture of worshiping self or my own desires or my own uh, will, I realize that worship is broken, that worship works best when we worship God. Because that's how we were designed to live. We were designed to praise him in all aspects of our life. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or, or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. I love this whatever you do, because it doesn't matter. You can put anything in there. Mowing the grass has the capacity to honor and to glorify and to praise God. Eating or drinking, taking a nap, watching the NBA finals, whatever you do, it has the capacity to bring honor and glory to God. But the word worship comes from two words pushed together, ascribe and worth. When you look at the etymology, it's ascribe and worth. And we're always ascribing worth to something at some point. That worship is ascribing worth to something or to someone. That if worship is ascribing worth by definition, then A, we realize that worship is not confined to this room. That worship is not confined to this room. Now, I love that we worship in this room, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But so often because of our compartmentalized minds, we say, well, this is worship and this is work. This is worship. This is hiking. This is worship. This is going to a restaurant. Uh, and we, we segment. Worship is not confined to what we do here. It certainly is clapping and singing, uh, but it's not limited to those things. And if we realize that it's not confined to what we do here, then B, we realize how this can go wrong very, very quickly. That if worship is bigger than what we do together, if it's bigger than what we do for 10, 15, 20 minutes once a week, then we realize how quickly this can go wrong. For some of us, our, our, our God, the thing that we worship is physical beauty. It's a, it's a vibe or it's a kid's sports or uh, maybe we're worshiping a political party or a political figure or maybe we're worshiping the idea of worship or maybe we're worshiping a job or a spouse or money. Maybe we're worshiping self Maybe you spend a lot of time worrying about things you can't control. Maybe you live a good portion of your life in fear of the future. When we find that we're ascribing worth to things that do not add value to our lives, that are not God himself, then what we realize is we're taking those things and we're making a golden image out of it. Just like uh, in the Old Testament when they would take out all their jewelry and Moses is going up to get the Ten Commandments and everybody's taking their jewelry off and they're melting it all down and they're creating this, this golden calf. You and I, every time we place uh, value and worry and fear and anxiety, uh, we're, we're creating an image of the, whatever that is and we're, we're bowing down to it. Every time we worry about what other people think of us, we're creating an image uh, of them in our minds and we're just bowing down to it twice a day and we're praying and, and we're creating an idol even though it would be really weird in, in our culture to have idols, it's not that weird outside of America. You drive around certain countries and there's just idols everywhere and people purchase them and, and, and spend time praying to them and, and, and giving things to them and, and it's just very normal and commonplace. See, I believe our idols are harder to see. I think the thing that we worship is, is often hidden. We're better at hiding our idols. That We create idols Anytime we ascribe worth and, and we're spilling over with praise every day and night, constantly testifying to the goodness and the value and the worth of something. And the problem is, we become transformed by what we worship. 
Practically, scientists have discovered that um, future generations of human beings like us are going to have a little greater curvature in our neck. Can you imagine why? Because we worship the devices and, and we, we bow down to them. Our necks are tilted over. They're noticing that throughout mankind, throughout history, we're going to have a greater curvature because we look down more often than we look up. They've also recognized that the human brain is, is shrinking. It's getting smaller because uh, they found that there's a dramatic increase in anxiety and depression. All because of a little box that glows and it tells us everything we could ever want to know. That we worship things that transform us physically. Spiritually, the things that we worship change who we are. And it changed who we're becoming. When we look at our society, we realize that, you know, maybe we're becoming more violent. Maybe we're becoming more greedy. Maybe uh, there's an increase in lust and, and there's an increase in, in crime. That it's possible that because of the things that we as a society, as a culture, find value in, it's shifting and changing our behaviors because we're transformed by the things we worship. You and I have a responsibility to look deep. And our lives, our time, our money, what are we placing value in? What are we worshiping? Because the problem is when we stop worshiping God, which we were created to do, we'll worship something else. And that's idolatry. And when we put our kids or sports or money or exercise or power or anything above God, it's going to transform us. Because every aspect of our life shows the potential to honor and praise God. It also shows the potential to honor and praise self. And outside of a love and attention towards God, worship is idolatry. And idols in our lives are gods with all the God taken out of them. So that you and I can become gods of our own world. That when we look at our lives, what we do is we often create idols out of things which are gods with all the God taken out so that we're in control, so that we're masters of our own uh, lives, so that we feel like we're in charge. And the problem is these idols are empty and they're transforming us and they're leading us to become less like God in the process. And the way that we live our lives often reveals those idols that if you want to know what idols you have in your life, just look at how you spend your money. Just look at how you spend your time. Look at what inhabits your uh, thought processes on a regular basis. The things that take up our time and our attention uh, end up being the things that we worship, the things that we ascribe value to. And it could be a, part, a political party or status or, or money or a job or whatever is driving you, whatever's motivating you, what is taking up space in your head. It could be something super religious. Some of us have idols that look really good. They look like good idols, but in return are bad. There are things in our life that take our focus and our attention because a lot of times we do things for God and not because of God. And we can actually make idols out of doing good things for God. That the idea of coming to church and, and giving and, and, and praying and worshiping they're ends to a greater, they're means to a greater end. They lead us to God himself. They don't stop here. We can make an idol out of giving. We can make an idol out of uh, uh, actual praise and worship. We can make an idol out of good, wholesome things when we lose sight of why we do it. If it's habit, if it's habitual, if it's out of fear, if it's out of uh, trying to earn something from God, then it becomes ritual, and all of a sudden it becomes habitual, and it's religion, and it's not godly, and it's all of a sudden an idol that looks like a really good thing in your life. 
But we were not created to worship anything other than God himself. And even doing things for God can become an idol. And the first story that explains worship in the Bible is the story of Cain and Abel. If you remember Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, uh, verse 1, it begins to describe the, the life of Cain and the life of Abel. And it describes the first act of worship. In Genesis 4, 1, it says, Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. I don't know how much time was in between. That was really fast. Maybe they were twins, but regardless, we get one verse, two kids. Then she also gave birth. Now Abel became a shepherd of flock, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel, and his offering. But he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. There's something fascinating happening here. Two guys come in, they're gonna bring uh, an offering, they're gonna worship the Lord. Uh, Abel, he's given some of the lands, or Cain rather, gives some of the lands produce, and Abel, he's gonna give some of the flock uh, and the fatted portions. He's gonna give the first of the flock and the fatted portions. And God looks at these worship offerings and he says, okay, I'm gonna accept yours, Abel. But Cain, that's not acceptable. And Cain gets upset. I mean, Cain's sacrifice is presented in the text with very little information. We're not given a lot. It just says Cain gives some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, which sounds fine. I mean, if you said David gave some of his income to the church, you'd go, okay. Ben gave some of his time to the church. You'd be like, great. We don't need to know more. We just know that you're trying. We just need to know that you're giving something, right? I mean, it's better than nothing. Some's better than nothing. And so we just bypass that. And if you look at Abel, Abel says he gave some of the firstborn of his flock and their fatted portions. And so you can read the scripture and go, well, they both gave some, so good job. I mean, we live in a society, everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets the thumbs up, you both win, we should accept all of it. And yet, God chose Abel's over Cain's, but they both gave something. The word some is in both, so what we're able to deduce by this passage is that it's not about quantity. If it was about quantity, what it looks like is they both gave a similar amount or an adequate or an acceptable amount. So it's not about quantity. Abel gives the firstborn. And it's where we begin to see what God is asking of you and me. It's where we begin to carve out what it is that God actually asks of our lives when we begin to realize we're free to worship anything. What is God actually asking of us? Abel gives his firstborn, which says... God, you come first. He didn't wait to see how much he was going to get for himself. He didn't wait to see how how much flock he was going to have. He didn't set aside some for the winter. He may need some meat later or some clothes. He said the first thing that's born is God's because God deserves the first. And then he gives the fat portion, the good portion, because God deserves the best. We begin to look at our lives as a sacrifice to God, as holy, living, sacrifice, and worship, we begin to realize God wants the first and he wants the best. Yesterday, uh, I mowed the grass, and then I went and uh, worked out, um, and I just wanted to brag on that. Those are the two things I wanted to tell you. 
And then uh, I came home, and, uh, and, and Jude goes, hey, let's play basketball, Dad. And I was, I was pretty beat. I mean, you know, I was tired. I was like, yeah, sure, man, let's play basketball. And so we play basketball, and he's like, let's play some more. And he's like, pretty tough on me. Like, I'm getting beat up out there. The older I get, the, the harder it's getting to uh, compete, though I can... I uh, may still be able to beat him sometimes. The idea, though, is that um, after that, my daughter comes and she's like, hey, um, will you help me? She's, she's doing shot put. Can you, can you go in the yard and throw? And I'm like, I'm worn out. Who got the best of my time? My lawn, right? Who got the best portion, my best focus? Who got the least? When we begin to look at our lives and we realize how we live, we wake up, we take care of ourselves, we go to work, we work all day, we come home, we're tired. We might spend a little time with God before we go to bed, we might not, and then we do it again the next day, and the next, and the next, and then we come into church, and you guys are here at 1045, so this might be the first thing you've done today, it might not be, but God always ends up getting the least of my time and the least of my efforts. I end up being Cain, where I'm like, I gave you some. Deal with that. You should be happy with that. You could have gotten nothing, and you got some, and God's going, I'm not accepting this. I want the best, and I want the first. Cain, by contrast, he was just merely showing up. And I think, how many times in my life have I just shown up? How many times have I just shown up? I mean, I know you've been here a while, and you've heard some amazing sermons, right? And you're like, David's never just phoned it in. But let's be honest. There's some times we just show up. And he needs to know that I've got an offering, so I'm just going to give something. And, and it's just a little of what I had setting aside. This is a portion of my life. There's no love. There's no humility. There's no passion. I'm just, I'm here. And in Genesis 4, 6, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? I love that God cares. Cain's mad at God. God could have been like, hey, you deal with that. I'm not going to, you know, come back to me when you're, when you're over your pity party. You can come back to me when you're no longer angry. God cares about Cain. And I think how many times does he wrestle with my own anger with him, you know, where God's like, hey, David, I'm still here even though you're mad at me. God cares. He says, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? And then God responds. He doesn't even wait for a response. He said, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? He asks this in the form of a question, but I believe it's rhetorical. Cain knows. He was raised to know the truth and how he should have approached God. But God gives Cain another chance. He's given him another chance. I love that we serve a God of multiple chances. Where he gives Cain another shot to, to reposture his heart, to humble himself, to repent, to, uh, to make amends, and to do what is right. And God's saying, hey, if you'll just do what is right... I'll, it'll be accepted. See, God wasn't done with Cain. Isn't this amazing that, that God had some reason to be done with Cain, but he wasn't done because God's never done with any of us. Even when we just show up, even when we just give a portion of our heart or a portion of our time or a portion of our lives, and God says, hey, I'd like the best of it. Give it another shot. Let's try again. See, worship is less about action, and it's more about heart motivation. It's more about the why we do what we do. Our motivation should be to honor and to glorify God. And I love getting into the, the nuances of worship and styles. And we have a 9 a.m. traditional where we just open hymns and, and, and sing the words. And, and we have, uh, sometimes we have instruments and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we have a pedal steel or whatever. I mean, it just doesn't matter. I love getting into that. But that's not why. That's how. And a lot of people get into the how and make it more important than the Why? 
And we lose sight of what we're doing here as human beings when we put the how above the why. The why is to honor and to glorify God. And whether it's to sing in a room like this or whether it's to be outside in God's creation, there's capacity and potential to honor and to glorify God because worship is less about action and more about heart motivation. Our heart's motivation should be to be in his presence to respect and to honor and to glorify him, to ascribe worth to God because he's worthy in Genesis 4-7. God says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted, Cain? But if you do not do what is right, guess what? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, when I read this passage, I imagine sin to be like a little kid hiding behind a door, like ready to pounce out and scare you. I don't know why. Just the word crouching feels very humorous to me, but I don't think there's anything humorous. This is more like a horror film where the, 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 the villain is hiding out, ready to consume you, ready to take your life, and they're crouching at the door. And what I've found to be true in my life is that ruling over sin is really hard. Maybe you've mastered it, but I've found it to be really hard. Do you know what tends to be a little easier? doing what's right the first time. If we do what is right, then we're accepted by God. If we don't, though, sin is crouching at the door, and then you have to rule over it. Now, I don't know if we can view the passage this way or not, but the way I see it and the way I read it is, do what is right, and you can avoid sin crouching at the door. Now, maybe sin's always at the door, and I know there's a measure of temptation that we're all gonna face because we're all sinners, but if you just do what is right, won't you just be accepted the first time? But a lot of us were hard-headed. We like to go the hard route. All of us do. We would rather have to wait for sin to crouch at the door, and then we got to rule over it. If we don't give God our best, with our best intention, sin's waiting. The sin of laziness, the sin of greed, the sin of uh, selfishness and pride. The distinction to ascribe worth to something or someone else is also waiting. If we'll do what is right, if we'll live righteously. And we can avoid a lot of pain and heartache. See, most idols don't feel like idols. Most idols feel more like companions. Many times in our lives, the idols that we have feel more like friends. I mean, they're not adding value to our life, but maybe they're not taking it away either. And a lot of the things we ascribe worth to and and, and make idols in our lives are good companions. And we all have those sinful desires and temptations. And the scriptures are saying, if you'll just do what is right, things will go so much easier for you. For Cain, his heart was corrupt. And out of a corrupt heart came corrupt actions. See, a lot of us want to, want to mitigate, we want to manage actions. We want to manage behaviors. So much of what we do in our lives is try to manage behaviors. We do things, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that. Next time I'll do better. I'm trying better. I'm trying to muster up the courage and the will to be better for other people. And we want to manage our behavior We don't want to take care of the heart. And if we'll actually position our heart to be centered on God and to allow everything that we do to be done to honor and to glorify him, we'll do what is right, we'll be accepted by God, then our actions will actually align. They'll follow. But for Cain, his heart was corrupt. God gives him a second chance. He said, let's self-correct. He decides not to. And so he dives even deeper into sin, which is uh, such a reflection of the human condition. That it's cyclical. If we'll do good, then, then good things continue, and others do good, and all this stuff. But if we'll do evil, evil becomes a little easier to do, right? We just get into that spiral. And in Genesis 4, 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. Let's hang out, man. And I want to shout, like, don't go. 
Like, this is a trap, man. Don't, don't, don't walk into it. But while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel. And what you know to be true is true. Cain kills him. And then the Lord says to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Once again, Cain is given another chance. He could have confessed here, oh, man, I messed up. Rage, anger, I couldn't help it. I'm so sorry. I want to come back to you. God's given him another chance. Where's your brother? Do what is right and you'll be accepted. But Cain in his hubris decides that he's going to double down. God won't know. He won't know that I just killed my brother, drug him off, buried him in the woods. Nobody can find that. He won't know. And he says, I don't know. And then he deflects. He says, what am I, his guardian? Am I supposed to take care of him? Go ask someone else. I don't know, God. He deflects. And he had an opportunity. And I wonder how many opportunities are presented to you and me to do what is right. Even when we do wrong, God's saying, hey, let's try again. Come on. Let's do right. Let's do right. Let's right. Sin, it's crouching at the door. You want to, don't go in that door. It's like a horror movie. You can see people walking in the wrong direction. Like, I know what's going to happen. Go the other way. I believe God in our life is going, I know what this is going to end. Just go this way. Turn the lights on, get in the car, do something different than you always do. We always do the same thing. And we always get the same results, and we always are disappointed in those results. God's going, let's try something new. But see, I put it back on God. I get frustrated with God because, uh, you know, I'm not going to look at my own behavior as being wrong. Uh, I'm going to go, well, God, why didn't you just accept Cain's offering? I mean, if God knew what was going to happen. He knew Cain would get angry. Uh, He knew he would kill Abel. Uh, If you look at the Old Testament, you see that there's a series of events that it's just a chain of events that set off that uh, of cursed people and and all of this pain and and, and problems leading all the way up to today. It's like, God, you could have avoided all of this heartache and pain and trouble if you had just accepted some of the produce. Do you not like cauliflower? I get it. Like, just, just take it. It's just some of the produce. You could have avoided all of this. God could have stopped it. But God knew in his infinite wisdom that if he accepts Cain's offering, he would actually be setting the precedence for accepting anything less than the best. God knew he would be encouraging a habit of giving something less than our best, less than first. He knew he would be setting a precedence for future generations to merely just show up all the time. To phone it in. See, God was setting things up for us so that he could say, there's only one way to approach me, and it's through Jesus. And you can come to me through God, through Jesus, and you can come to me, oh, but you can't come to me any other way. See, if he'd accepted Cain's offering, then we'd all just be climbing up different sides of the mountain, and the top would be God, and you'd take the north route, and you'd take the other one, and you're like, man, that route was hard. You should have come this way, and we'd all just be journeying up to God. He says, no, there's one way to me, and I'm not going to accept anything less. And do we really want a God who accepts less? Do we really want a God who doesn't expect much of us? Do we really want our creator to just let us wander off? Or do we want God who cares so much about us that he doesn't want us to phone it in? That he doesn't want us to live a life for self because he knows that's not our best, but he keeps drawing us in. So we don't get to just come to God anyway. So what I've noticed about worship is worship has one object. Worship has two contexts. And worship has three audiences. 
The one object is God. God is the object of all of our worship. If God is not the object of your worship, then we're doing it wrong. This is an easy answer. God should be at the center of our life. And if there's an area of your life where something else is at the center, then uh, you remove it, put God there, and watch how your life begins to flourish. It doesn't mean all your pain and problems go away uh, by any means, but God is there in the midst of all of those uh, to comfort, to guide, and to give peace. And so God is at the center of our lives. He is the one object that deserves our worship. There's two contexts. The two contexts can be described as scattered and gathered. There's scattered worship, which means that's everything we do outside of the context of this room. So your Monday through Saturday, unless you work here, uh, is, is your scattered worship. You're going home and you're going places and your restaurants and your schools and your activities and, and whatever you do and wherever you go, that is your scattered worship. Whether you're volunteering or working or watching TV, it all has the potential to uh, bring honor and glory to God. And so your scattered worship is important. In Colossians 3, it says whatever you do, make sure you do it enthusiastically as something done to the Lord, for the Lord, not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. If you're highlighting or memorizing, you serve the Lord Christ is a good one to just be reminded of tomorrow when you go to work and you're like, I don't like my job. You serve the Lord Christ. If you're retired and you're sleeping in, just be reminded, you serve the Lord Christ. Like everything that we do needs to be done to honor and to glorify God. You serve the Lord. But everything has to be done with enthusiasm. Whatever you do, it can be done for self or it can be done for God. What's your heart's motivation? I brush my teeth and I wash my face twice a day, every day, like most of you do, right? Is my heart's motivation to look better? Is it vain conceit? Do I want to, maybe a little, but it has the potential to go, I want to live forever so that I can proclaim God's goodness to future generations. We eat well. We take care of ourselves. Our, our physical body, it's a temple unto the Lord. We do this. We can do it for vain conceit. Or we can do it because we want to make sure we're around to keep pointing people to Christ. There are areas of our life where we could do it for self or we could do it for God. What's your heart's motivation? And how do we just turn that a little? For, the, for most of us, myself included, we're not off by too much. But over time, we drift. If we'll just make sure that wherever we're off, we just bring it back to go, I want to live for God. My scattered worship then begins to serve God. And then the second context is gathered worship. Welcome to gathered worship. This is what we do together in the presence of God and one another. Every week we have an opportunity to have gathered worship. This is what we do for the hour that we spend together. Sometimes it's an hour five. Today it's going to be over. I'm just giving you a heads up. This is what we do together. Now, our scattered worship fuels our gathered worship. So the better you and I are at worshiping God out here, the better it goes here. And the better we are here, the better it goes out there because it's cyclical. But see, what a lot of us want to do, and I'm not pointing at you, but other churches like you, is that we worship self all week, and then we come here, and we try to cram it all in. i got to get all of God I can, you know, so I hope David reads a lot of scripture, and I hope we sing all the right songs, because i got to get all my God in in this context, because the rest of the week's for self, and so we cram, and if you're one of those students who crammed at the last minute and you did well, we're happy you're here, but for the rest of us, we struggle when we cram. God's best is not for us to just get what we need out of God in one day, but he wants all of our lives to serve him. And you watch how this begins to fuel. This begins to take off. People begin to take note that the worship that we have together is stronger when you're here, and it's stronger when you've been worshiping God throughout your week. We together make this place come alive 
Because gathered worship feeds scattered and vice versa. We're very aware of how our lives spent during the week affect what happens here. And then there are three audiences. So there's one subject, two contexts, three audiences. The first audience in both scattered worship and gathered worship is God. He's first and foremost in our life. He is the one audience that loves us unconditionally. He's the object of our praise. Every waking moment in our lives uh, have the capacity to, to, to serve him and to honor and to glorify him. He's the one audience member who accepts and loves us unconditionally. So he is our audience. The second audience is the church. We're one another's audience. As we sing these songs and we read scriptures together and we receive communion together, we're observing one another. As we sing songs like the goodness of God and you hear the person next to you singing these words, you're reminding one another of the goodness of God. When we sing, even if it's out of tune, and some of you, you are, it's fine, you're reminding people of the biblical truths that we sing and we're very aware of the songs we sing here and theologically how accurate and sound they are because if we're proclaiming those to one another, we don't want to lie to each other. So we're singing and we're proclaiming because we're each other's audience. What we do in this room is very important. We're declaring the greatness of God. And then the third audience is the world. The world is watching. As much as you think no one is watching you, you're being watched. In Psalm 96, 3, it says, Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all people. And we're not merely uh, communicating the gospel to the people around us. We're celebrating it. Everything we do has the capacity to point people to Christ. When we allow our very lives to ascribe worth to God, people take note. People take note that our lives are meant to inhale the breath of God and the glory of his presence and exhale the echo of his wonder. That every breath we take in and out has the capacity to show people a God who loves us and cares for us and keeps giving us chances and works on the human heart and creates something new in us. Our heartbeat becomes the rhythm. Our breath becomes the song. Every breathing moment is a song that can be sung to praise our God. Your life is worship. How is it being spent? What are you worshiping today? If you would bow your head and close your eyes this morning.